Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, July 25th, 2020. Once again, we have our friend Truthvids here with me to address Charles Weissman's book, What About the Seedline Doctrine? This is part 24 in this series. It is the final part. And therefore, it is subtitled, Nailing the Coffin, because that's what we need to do. We need to nail the coffin shut on Charles Weissman, bury him, and put him out of the way of Christian identity. The man is a fraud, a charlatan, a liar, and a deceiver, and I believe we've proven that many times throughout the first 23 parts of the series, that Charles Weissman, by his own words, was not even a Christian. Hello, Truthvids. Thank you for being here once again. Hey, Bill. Yeah, great to be back. So, yeah, this will be the last one, and hopefully we'll make it clear that Weissman was nothing but a deceiver. Um, I just had a little intro. Uh, I thought it was worth mentioning that when you look at old CI pastors or even just general good Christian men who have tried to stand up and speak up, it's not only the identity message or even just calling out the Jews they speak of, but they also are always disgusted with the decadence of our racist society and they can see how it's declining. You know, the increase in immorality, the race mixing, the perversions, and that's how you can always see that you know, they're trying to help our people. It's not only trying to have a feel-good message of that we are the children of Israel. It's clearly motivated by what they see going on around them, and they're, they're trying to help us. And then there's another category, and that is Weissman and these deceivers who pretend to be good men helping us, you know, the same category, but really they're working against us, and they're trying to conceal the truth. And hopefully all these presentations that we've done, it should have proven that, that Weissman fits into that wolf in sheep's clothing category, an interloper and nothing but a deceiver. And um, just finally, you know, this veal that has been over our race, our people that's blinded us, the children of Israel, for a long time, and that has caused us to struggle to realize who we are and who the Jews are. It's always been mostly because of these infiltrators like Weissman that has always caused us to not see the full truth and to maintain the lies. And, you know, you can compare the, the same deceivers in Christ's ministry and Paul's ministry and the apostles. They all had to deal with them. And it's the same people then that it is today. Weissman is just another one of these devils that's trying to mix lies with the truth and keep our entire race blind. Right, Bill? Well, absolutely. That The whole idea of what we call a gatekeeper, the gatekeepers, the people that purposely mislead the masses or, in this case, mislead the congregation – and keep them from entering into a new truth, a new realm of awareness, whatever level we're, we're referring to. Weissman is a gatekeeper because he purposely barred the door 
to an understanding and a greater awareness of scripture. And that entire phenomenon was first described by Yahshua Christ when he said, and I'm going to paraphrase, when he said, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you do not enter into the kingdom of heaven and you prevent those who are entering. That's the gatekeepers, and Charles Weissman was certainly one of them. He, he created these um, sophisticated arguments explaining why two seed line cannot be true and based most of those arguments on emotions, on, on appeals to emotion. And by doing that, he deceived an entire generation of identity Christians who still follow him to this day. And his books need to be burned. <laughs> he has to be eradicated from Christian identity. This denial of two seed line, I think, proves it over and over again. And, and tonight, like I said, we hope to put the final nails in the coffin. We hope to nail it shut and send Weissman to, to the pit that he belongs in. <laughs> so this final portion of our address of Charles Weissman's book, What About the Seedline Doctrine, may be <laughs> anticlimactic, because I believe that we've argued most of the things that we are going to revisit here. We've already argued against Weissman's ideas just about every idea he presents here, but he's repeating himself. So in order to show our detractors that we can address every single thing he says, it's necessary that we repeat ourselves. We have already elucidated his many contradictions, and we hope to have fully exposed his many outright lies and misrepresentations of Scripture. And now that we near the conclusion of his book, we hope that he is already buried. But if not, then perhaps here we can drive the final nail in the coffin. Up to this point in chapter 6 of Weissman's book, we have seen his attempt to explain psychological reasons for the existence of our two seed line doctrine. And he ascribed a lot of reasons to its existence, which all boil down to our needing excuses for blaming Jews for our woes, rather than blaming ourselves. But that too is a straw man argument, because we do not blame Jews for our woes. Rather, we blame sinful whites who are caught up in all the idolatry offered to them by Jews, and who have also accepted the Antichrist teachings packaged under the umbrella of liberalism, which means a lot of things. Liberalism is humanism. Liberalism is egalitarianism. That There's a lot of components to liberalism. This is what has led us to accept not only Jews, but all of the other biological infestations of Yahweh's creation. So Jewish supremacy and the imposition of Negroes and all of the other races upon Christendom are a result of our problems and not the actual cause of our problems.
But here Weissman also betrayed himself once again, where he spoke of Jews as a race, and he admitted that, and I quote, throughout all of history, we have examples of Jewish hostility towards white Christians and the harmful effects Jews have had on the European nations. They have clearly been as aliens in our midst, destroying our way of life. Now, they're Charles Weissman's words. They're in that final paragraph where we left off last week in the middle of chapter six. And now we are going to read a paragraph from page 15 of Weissman's book. And he said, in Eden, God established an order in which Adam and Eve were without sin had dominion over all creation, and had a special relationship with God. And we agree with that. <coughs> I'm sorry. And he goes on to say, the serpent was opposed to that order, but could not on his own do anything about it. So it engaged in deceit to get Adam and Eve to upset that order, and consequently establishing a new order, one which gave the serpent dominion over man. Christ's mission was to destroy this system and bring man back into his original relationship with God. And these things I myself taught in my Pragmatic Genesis series, where I explained how the serpent was the actual symbol of rulership in Assyria, among the Hittites, among the ancient Egyptians. So this is very um, concise, but it's very true. I agree with everything Weissman said in that paragraph, but it's how the serpent did that. That's where we disagree. So now I'll read from page 16, because Weissman starts to go off track. Then the enmity was not with the lineage or seed of Adam, because the serpent had already subdued them by getting them to leave God's order and enter its order. Now, that's not true. And he goes on and says, the reason for the enmity is the conflicting objectives and results that the serpent and Christ had in relation to Adamic man. Adamic man, <clears throat> my voice is cracking. And, and that's just about true. I, I, I agree with that. And he said, the serpent induced Eve and thereby Adam to sin. And that's true, but we disagree on the nature of the sin, right? So finally, I'm going to read where Weissman continues to deny two seed line on page 17 of his book. To better understand this enmity, one must put himself in the serpent's place. Suppose you were someone that told suppose you were told that someone was coming to destroy all that you accomplished. Now that I agree with. To destroy your order in the world. That I agree with. But the important thing here is that Weissman denies two seed line while admitting the basic facts of what we have always upheld that this serpent was a person and had an order in the world that was contrary to God's order before Adam was created. 
And Weissman is admitting that here. In fact, he would destroy you, meaning the serpent, and would then establish his order, which you were against the establishment of the order of God with the creation of Adam in a world of chaos. Would you not have enmity towards that person? This was the relationship between the serpent and Christ. The two seeds of Genesis 3.15. And that part right there is dead wrong. Because the two seeds were two races of people. They were not just two individuals. The point of contention is between them, not between two races of people. Now, that's Weissman's, that's the final statement I'm going to quote from the early pages of this book. Now, we have already shown at length that first, the seed of the woman was not merely Christ, but all of the legitimate descendants of Eve. And second, that the serpent does indeed have seed. The tares, which were planted by the devil and are still in the world today. We cannot possibly restate all of the proofs of those assertions here. But let's put it this way. Did the serpent live for 5,000 years? Because it was 5,400 years, according to the Septuagint chronology, between Genesis chapter 3 and the birth of Christ, as it's described in Matthew chapters 1 and 2. 5,400 years. So is the, rate, is, is the point of contention between two individuals or is it between two races? Because if it was Christ alone that could defeat the serpent, he could have come, being God, incarnate, he could have come right from the beginning. He could have come right at the beginning. It's two races of people. But Weissman conceded the fact that the serpent was an intelligent being who was able to establish an order in the world that was contrary to the order of Yahweh God, and that he was also able to seduce Eve and then lead Adam into that world order in defiance of God. But Weissman refused to identify that serpent in spite of the fact that both the revelation and the apostles of Christ in the epistle of Jude and the epistle, the second epistle of Peter, as well as his gospel, they all identified a serpent for us. Instead, Weissman merely accused Christ of being a name caller, a slanderer, which is actually the role that the devil is expected to fulfill. That's what we would expect from a devil, to accuse God of just being a slanderer. At the same time, Weissman insisted that Christ had already destroyed the power of the serpent, or, as he also said, the power of Satan in this world. That was chapter 2 of Weissman's book. However, the very letters of the apostles of Christ, as well as the Revelation, all clearly refute Weissman's assertion. If Paul says, 30 years after the cross, that Satan is sitting in the temple of God, pretending to be God, and he was, he was writing in the present tense when he wrote that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that Satan was sitting in the temple of God, imagining himself to be God. If Jesus Christ, in his revelation in chapter 2, 
informs the church at Pergamos that that is where Satan's seat is. And the revelation was 60 years after the cross of Christ. And Satan's seat in the present tense is in Pergamos, 60 years after the cross of Christ. How did Christ destroy the power of Satan out of the world at the cross? He didn't. He overcame it at the cross, but to destroy it out of the world would be a, an ongoing process from the time of the cross, which is what the book of Revelation is all about, describing in prophetic language that ongoing process until we finally get to see the fulfillment of Revelation chapters 19 and 20. I don't know if you have anything to say to that. Yeah, I was just going to say it should be completely obvious that you have the serpent in the garden who's linked with the devil of old, you know, and then you have Christ calling them offspring of vipers or, or serpents, and you, you, you should be able to see that there's a connection there, that they are descended of this serpent, and when you realize that it's fallen angels, the whole picture should come pretty clear, right? It, it should absolutely come clear, and that they're still here, and, and we will prove that the apostles believe them to still be among us when we get a little further on in this, because I'm going to cite 2 Peter chapter 2 at, at length in that respect. But Weissman is denying it all. Oh, Satan's gone. 33 AD, Christ is crucified. Satan's gone. We don't have any more to worry about Satan. Now it's just us. That's what he's saying. Yeah. But and, why um, does also, Christ... there's not a single verse of, you know, Satan setting up a school or, or a college to teach a race right. of people or one of the Adamic races, you know, this is what I want you to do. Follow this doctrine. It's always race mixing that's the problem. Always. All the time throughout the Bible. Absolutely. And and if Christ destroyed Satan out of the world, why does what why are these that there are these groups that still exist today as races who are opposed to Christ? if he destroyed the power of Satan out of the world in 33 AD. So, so Weissman, his entire premise is built on a, a, a series of lies. It's systemized deception. If you fall for the first lie, you're going to fall for them all, everyone. So if Yahshua Christ had called his adversaries serpents, and the offspring of vipers, the Ganema, meaning that their parents were vipers, then he identified a race of vipers. And if Jews, as Weissman has admitted, have, and, and just in this last paragraph that we addressed in this chapter, chapter six, if Jews, as Weissman has admitted, have acted maliciously towards Christianity, and towards our white race in general, and have done so for 2,000 years, as Weissman also admitted, then they stand inherently contrary to the order of God. It's inherent in them. It's innate. It's part of their nature. Therefore, we must ask, how are they not 
the tares who were planted by the devil before the foundation of the world. We interpret that word world not as the planet, but as an order. The word for world in the New Testament is actually often translated from a Greek word meaning order, cosmos. Order is the word Weissman used and admitted that the serpent had its own order, but that God established another order, a cosmos. The Adamic cosmos was established by God. The creating of Adam was a new establishment of the order of God, as opposed to the corruption in the world, which came from the order of the serpent, as even Weissman has admitted. The tares were planted before the time when our Adamic race was created, because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was already present at that time, and Yahweh God gave Adam one law, not to touch or eat of that tree. But we must also state that the order of the serpent is actually a disorder. It's represented in myth in the chaos of Tiamat, the primordial serpent of the Mesopotamian legends. You know, I really believe that Weissman had to profess certain truths because he couldn't show that he ignored them. So he professed them so that he could spin a tale and distract you from the truth that they really relate to us. And that admission that the serpent had its own order in the world was Weissman's attempt to do that, to admit half of the truth so that he could get you to not believe the other half of the truth. And it was purposeful, and he's a deceiver. But Weissman also admitted... Yeah, it was all calculated. Oh, right. Sorry. Oh, no, you're all right. He calculated it all, right? He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew the truth, but his purpose was to deny the truth and lead others to deny it. Weissman also admitted that the Jews as a people, here in this chapter, here in our last paragraph, he admitted that the Jews as a people are ungodly and even satanic, although he, he refuses to admit why they are that way. He never explains it. Where does he explain why the Jews are satanic? He doesn't. Later, he will once again make the preposterous claim that the Jews of Christ's time were all Israelites. But for now, we shall resume with his next paragraph after where we had left off on page 55 of his book. And once again, he made this admission. Again, the question is not that the Jews are ungodly or satanic, but why they are this way. Weissman said that, but he never answered it. Unless you've seen something I haven't. Maybe I missed something. Where did he answer that? <laughs> so, he goes on to say... No, no, he knows their nature, but he doesn't want to admit it. Yeah, absolutely. 
he goes on and says, and this gets to the error of the satanic seed line doctrine. So he accuses us of having error, but he never explains what he believed to be the truth of why they are satanic. He wants to blame us all for being satanic, which is essentially what he does. He already said that it was an Adamic man that killed Abel, that Cain was Adamic and killed Abel. In one of his earlier chapters, I think it was in chapter four, he said that Cain was Adamic and he killed Abel. And therefore, and he said this, he said, the entire Adamic race is responsible for killing Abel. That's what he said. That's incredible. <laughs> so that means Christ himself would be responsible for killing Abel. Wow. This, this doctrine, he said, and this gets to the error of the satanic seed line doctrine, why the Jews are satanic, the error he never explains. This doctrine has the source of evil, of the evil and ungodliness associated with the Jews coming from outside the Adamic race and outside of God, which is a false argument in a lot of ways. Earlier in this chapter, Weissman said, and he said it himself, the Jews are a problem just like the fox is a problem. If we are so foolish to ignore the innate characteristics foxes have exhibited throughout the centuries and believe the humanistic tribe that they are equal with all the other farm animals, that means that he believes that foxes are farm animals, because he said, with all the other farm animals, and thus allow them equal access to the farmyard, then we have no one to blame but ourselves for the loss of chickens from the chicken coop. So Weissman admits that the Jews have wicked, innate characteristics, which have endured in them for many centuries. But then he counts them as farm animals while foxes are certainly not farm animals. Rather, foxes are unwelcome intruders on the farm. Then Weissman makes an analogy showing concern for chickens when he should have been concerned with the sheep and not the chickens. <laughs> but before commenting, in other words, Weissman even can't make, he can't even make an honest analogy. The foxes aren't farm animals, I'm sorry, but horses and cows and goats and chickens and sheep, they're farm animals. This, you could even say that a pig is a farm animal, even though we all know swine is unclean. Farmers will keep pigs because they eat dead animals and help keep the farm clean. For that reason, a pig yeah, is useful. Yeah, they have dogs to um, guard and keep the foxes away, right? Right, right. But a pig won't go devouring live chickens. Not that I've ever seen. <laughs> but the pig will eat the dead chicken that was old and died out on a range, and the pig will eat it. Well, Weissman can't even make a good farm analogy. And... and I was raised in urban areas, but I know a little bit about farm animals. 
<laughs> to make a better analogy than that, Weissman, of course, we know about Jews and farming, right? They don't go together at all. That's why Weissman can't make a good farm analogy. I swear it must be. <laughs> Before commenting on his statements concerning the Jews here, comparing them to foxes, but thinking that they're farm animals, right? We will continue with Weissman to the end of this page for two short, two more short paragraphs, except that we're going to have a digression after the next one. But we're going to save our conversation on the, the nature of Jews for, for later. Weissman says, the evil and ungodliness of the Jews is actually derived from certain members of our race, the white Adamic race, which had been cursed or rejected by our God. Listen to this now. Weissman is putting together the pieces of two seed line, and at the same time, he's denying it. He says, persons such as Cain, Canaan, Ishmael, Esau, Amalek, the evil figs of Judah, and the Judeans who rejected Christ were all of the white Adamic race. That's not true. All of these people were cursed by God, not by Satan, and thus their descendants would be against God and his people. Throughout the centuries, these cursed and rejected people have mixed with other peoples becoming the Jews of today, but he doesn't admit that they mixed before the time of Christ to be the Jews of the time of Christ. So he fails there. Even though we have historical documents proving that they did mix with the Judeans before the time of Christ. He doesn't even, he, he acts, he can't be ignorant of their existence. He can't be. They were all um, sorts of pieces of evidence floating around from the Jewish encyclopedia, admissions on, on the um, Jews being Edomites, it, even in that, from the 1920s, I believe, that should have caused him to look into it. But he ignored Flavius Josephus and Strabo, the geographer, and he ignores Paul of Tarsus, and, and we'll discuss that later. And, Before and even the just looking at them, right? I mean, common sense tells you that they're not white. I mean, the majority of them, you can generally see something's off. Well, well, right, absolutely. There are some Ashkenazi, some German Jews that are extremely white-looking that you could not tell they were Jews. You would really think they were German or English. And most Jews do not look white. They look just like Arabs. And And... How how do um in Palestine how do Arab Islamic Arabs get away with dressing up to look like Jews and just walk into bar mitzvahs to, to with, with pipe bombs right to <laughs> blow them up and and that's because they really can't be told apart from most Jews okay before commenting on Weissman's statements before re, be 
concerning the Jews here, I have to address some of what he just said more immediately. Where Canaan was cursed, where was Canaan cursed by Yahweh? Canaan was never cursed by God. In Genesis chapter 9, we read, And Noah awoke from his wine, and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, now he didn't even curse Ham. A lot of mainstream Christians think that Ham was cursed. Ham was never cursed. So Ham's other sons were never cursed. Only Canaan was cursed. And he said, Noah said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be Yahweh God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. As the account goes, Ham had uncovered his father's nakedness. And we can only understand what really happened where we read in the law in Leviticus chapter 20 that the man that lieth with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. So Canaan, who must have been the result of that unseemly union, was cursed by Noah. However, he was not cursed by God. In fact, Noah insisted that Canaan remain as a slave to his brethren. And therefore, Yahweh must have demanded that the Canaanites all be destroyed for reasons other than what Weissman suggests. There has to be, since Noah, in his curse, insisted that Canaan remain and be a slave to his brethren. Yet Yahweh demanded that all the Canaanites be destroyed. There must have been reasons for that, other than what Weissman suggests, that the Canaanites were only cursed <laughs> by God. Because God never cursed the Canaanites. He never cursed Canaan. Noah did. But Noah wanted Canaan to stay. Yahweh knew better and wanted them all destroyed. There must be another reason. There must be a greater reason for that. As, and we'll get to that reason. But as for Cain, Cain was told that if he did not do well, it was because sin lieth at the door. As Yahweh was challenging him to do well, but he failed. And Yahweh knew that he would fail because he was a bastard. That's how sin lieth at the door. Later, Ishmael was rejected by Yahweh, but only as the heir of Abraham. And he had to be sent off so that he would not compete with Isaac. But he was blessed when he was sent off. He wasn't cursed. He was blessed rather than being cursed. In spite of that, from the very time of Esau, the Ishmaelites and Edomites began to mingle together, as even Esau had taken an Ishmaelite wife. However, Esau was not cursed. He was only rejected from having the birthright after he had sold it to Jacob.
and as it is clearly evident in Scripture, because he was a fornicator, a race mixer, having taken Canaanite wives. That is seen in both the rejection of Esau by his mother Rebekah and in the words of Paul of Tarsus in Hebrews chapter 12, where Yahweh said that he hated Esau. That was 1,000 years. No, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. That was about 1,400 years after Esau lived. Yahweh hated, Yahweh hated Esau for what Esau did, but Esau was not cursed by Yahweh. There's a huge difference there. So Weissman is a liar. Amalek was an Edomite. And like Canaan, there must be a greater reason than being an Edomite that Yahweh had said, write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Amalek was never cursed, but he was a son of Esau. Esau was never cursed. Yahweh hated Esau for what Esau did. What is that? Esau took Canaanite wives. So, for whatever Canaan did, Yahweh never cursed Canaan, and Yahweh sort of overruled Noah's curse on Canaan by saying that all the Canaanites must be destroyed. So there must be a greater reason than simply what Canaan had done, because Canaan was never cursed by God, and Esau was never cursed by God. Weissman is a liar. Finally, where Weissman makes mention of the evil figs of Judah. In the scripture, Yahweh had shown to Jeremiah two baskets of figs, good and evil. And while they were apparently in Jerusalem, nowhere does it say that the evil figs are of Judah. Show me where it says that. The good figs are likened to them that are carried away captive of Judah. Then there are others of Judah who would be turned over to the evil figs. So how could men of Judah be turned over to men of Judah? That is nonsense. The evil figs were <laughs> never said to have been of Judah. And Weissman's assumption is wrong. Did he actually read Jeremiah chapter 24? That's all I have to ask. Do these men that make, that, that make premises, that, that base opinions on Scripture, do they really read the Scripture? The evil figs were never said to have been of Judah. The evil figs were not of Judah. But certain men of Judah would be given over to the evil figs for their punishment. This is clearly the context in Jeremiah chapter 24. Weissman is crafty and deceptive, or he is stupid and cannot read. In any event, he doesn't get anything entirely right. He gets a lot of stuff almost right. <laughs> now for Weissman's final paragraph yeah, on purposely. this page. Right, he must be doing it purposely. I don't believe he's that stupid. 
and um, I just want to say the, the curse of Canaan, it wasn't actually that severe at all, was it? It was just um, Noah wanted to make sure his uh, three sons shared in the inheritance equally, and he didn't want Canaan to, you know, take more or take away from Shem and Japheth. He was just merely protecting them, right? That's all he was doing. And, you know, even though he might have been angry at Ham, he, he held back and just put a basic curse on Canaan to make sure he, he served Shem and Japheth and nothing more. Right. And and even though he would be cursed and have to be a servant of his brethren, he would still be preserved in his destiny to be a slave to his brothers. That's the curse that Noah put on Canaan. Later, the Canaanites fulfill that curse in part where they are slaves to, the, to Solomon. Solomon enslaved them all and made them slaves to the Israelites. That wasn't good because the Israelites were told to exterminate them. But nevertheless, even though Yahweh's command wasn't fulfilled, Noah's words were. So, the curse on Canaan wasn't really that bad considering these circumstances of his birth. And we know that that must have been the case because Ham committed this act of treachery against his father. And Canaan was cursed. Even before Canaan was born, he was cursed immediately. And he was called Canaan immediately, and that became his name. How could that be? Mitzrayim wasn't cursed. Aram wasn't cursed. None of, um, I'm sorry, Aram was a Shemite. Mitzrayim was not cursed. Cush was not cursed. Ludna was not cursed. None of Ham's other sons were cursed. Canaan was cursed. As soon as Ham committed that act. So Canaan must have been the result of the act. That's the only thing that explains why Canaan was cursed even before he was born. Yet Ham or Ham's other sons were never cursed. Mitzrayim wasn't cursed. Okay. These bad figs of Judah. The bad figs were in Judah. But it never says they are of Judah. And then you see men of Judah being turned over to these bad figs who are not of Judah. There must be something else about these bad figs, about their identity, and about what makes them so bad they can't be eaten. Now, Weissman's final paragraph on this page. It should not be surprising that the great enemy of the white Christian people is composed of degenerates and rejects of their own race. You know what? In Christ, nobody's rejected. So I don't know where he gets that. And he says, most of Israel's enemies were offshoots of the white Adamic race, such as the Midianites, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Amalekites, and even some of the Canaanites. What do you mean some of the Canaanites? So Weissman is indirectly asserting that the Jews are degenerates and rejects of the white Adamic race. 
Yet, as we proceed with page 56, we will find him claim once again that the Jews of the time of Christ were all Israelites, but that today's Jews are mixed, where he says that many of their descendants became a part of the hybrid Jews of today. We shall address that again when we get to that point in the end of his book. Earlier in this book... Hybrids with what, though? I mean, if we're all the Adamic race, how do you become a hybrid? Yeah, right. He doesn't really explain that. That doesn't make sense. He's all over the place. Right. Because he doesn't really explain that. He just refers us to another book that he wrote, which I'm sure is also a bundle of deception. I wouldn't even read it at this point unless I really had the wherewithal to take that apart also. But I don't think how I need to take that apart because I've taken apart all of his basic premises throughout this series. So why would I need to go to his next book? The man's a charlatan or a deceiver. Earlier in this book, I think it was chapter four. It might have been chapter five, but I doubt it. Earlier in this book, Weissman confused Heber the Kenite who was called a Kenite because he was a smith, he confused Hebrew with the tribe of Kenites or with people of a particular city, which was called Cain, as Weissman also confused that issue. And as we have shown, there was no city called Cain, at least in the older manuscripts, such as the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls. The truth, as we had also shown, is that Heber, who was from the same family as Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, was a Midianite and a descendant of Abraham and Keturah like the rest of the Midianites. The Midianites were at times enemies of Israel, but it is certain in later scriptures that when they were enemies, they were in league with Moabites and others of Israel's enemies. That is nothing novel, as white Adamic Philistines had Rephaim and others among them, and they were also the enemies of Israel. They were white tribes who were unaware of the truth and purposes of the God of Israel, competing for the same land and resources. But Yahweh never commanded the complete obliteration of Midianites or Philistines, down to every last man, woman, and child. So not all of the enemies of ancient Israel are equal, and Weissman is creating a lie by simplifying that issue. In other words, the Midianites and the Philistines do not belong in the same category as the Canaanites. The Canaanite races... It's just like um, Sparta and Athens, right? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, right. It's like Sparta and Athens. Two different forms of government um, and two different tribes of people, Ionians and Dorians, who were competing for the same land and resources. And it was really a racial war between the Dorians and the Ionians, but it was disguised as a political war between democracy 
the democracy of Athens and the oligarchy of Sparta. It was disguised as politics, but it was all about race. Sort of reminds you of Democrats and Republicans today, where most white people are Republicans because that they think Republicans are going to uphold the status quo of white security and dominance over American politics, where Democrats are now seen as the party for niggers and spicks for um, taco goblins and, and witch doctors, whatever. <laughs> it, it's, it, it's the same yeah, thing. Free houses and free money and, and all that for those races. Right. Right. And, and so it's ra a racial struggle that's disguised as politics. But we all know that the typical Republican loves his taco goblins, too. So most white people are only being fooled by clowns like Donald Trump, who aren't really clowns because they're also deceivers. They're also deceivers. The clowns are the ones that believe them. So Weissman's a deceiver and the real clowns are the people that believe this instead of reading their Bibles. The Canaanite races were to be destroyed completely even though Yahweh knew that the children of Israel would fail to execute that command. Ostensibly, they were to be destroyed completely. Like I said, there must be other reasons besides the curse of Canaan that Noah put on Canaan, not God. God never, Yahweh God never cursed Canaan. Noah did. So, ostensibly, there must be other reasons. And we see they were mingled with the Kenites and the Rephaim and other groups which were not from Noah and his sons. So they were all bastards. The ultimate destruction of Canaanites, Edomites, and all other bastards is a matter of prophecy, which is still yet to be fulfilled because the children of Israel failed. Weissman fails once again because he fails to make this distinction. He's not. He sounds like he's learned in the scriptures, but he's ignoring most aspects of the scriptures. Now we shall commence with the final page of his book, and we will address the Jew issue as we get through this page. Once again, page 56. The proponents of the Cain, I'm sorry, the proponents of the Satanic Seedline Doctrine find it more appealing to have Cain be non-Adamic by having his father be the serpent or Satan. This place is the source of evil in the Jews, coming from any coming from an outside source that being from outside of the white Adamic race and outside of God's good work. That now, not for nothing, I'm going to take an unplanned digression. It was Christ himself who explained that a good tree cannot produce bad fruit and that a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. And he 
was speaking of men. He wasn't speaking of fruit trees. He was speaking of men. If Yahweh planted the Adamic race here, and it is good, and Yahweh called it good, then when man becomes bad, there must be some other reason for man being bad. And we look in Revelation chapter 2, and Christ warns fornicators to repent. And if they don't repent, then he will put them through trials, but he doesn't say that he'll kill them. Instead, he says that he will kill their children. Why would Jesus kill children? Only if they were the result of fornication, which is race mixing. That's an entire aspect of scripture that Weissman is completely ignoring. Why is he ignoring that? Christ said in, in Matthew chapter 13, right after he gave the parable of the wheat and the tares, he gave a parable of the net. And in the parable of the net, he said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind. And that word is genos. It means race, gathered of every race, which when it was full, they drew it to the shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So just like there are wheat and tares, there is a good race and there aren't good races. Good is singular in that passage. It is not plural. It is a race, every race. There is one good kind and there is one bad kind. So how could Weissman ignore all of these aspects of scriptures? That there is wheat and there are tares. And there, are, there is a good race and that there, are, that there is a bad kind, which is not the good kind. How, how is that? Who did Yahweh call good but the Adamic man? How could, therefore, a good tree produce bad fruit contrary to the words of Christ? We can sin, and we could sin for, for various reasons, but even when we sin, as the Apostle John says, we have a propitiation in Christ. Where did this bad kind, where do they have a propitiation? They have no propitiation. Why don't they have a propitiation? As a race, for their racial characteristics, they go into the lake of fire. Not because they, were, that they sinned, but because of who they are. Yeah, and, and also, um, just the way the nets described it, it describes our exact circumstances today, that they're all around us, that you, you know, when you throw a net in a city, that you'd get a whole bunch and only Yahweh can do the separating, that we're Absolutely. completely surrounded. It's our exact circumstances today. Absolutely. In, in, 
One method of the Hebrew scriptures that's employed very often is parallelism. And parallelism can occur in a verse, it can occur in a sentence, or it can occur in a chapter or a, an entire um, passage. Where you have in Ezekiel, you have um, an, a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and then you have a lamentation over the prince of Tyre. They're really the same individual. It's a parallelism, meaning that the same entity is described consecutively in different ways. So, can the Ethiopian change his skin? or the leopard change his spots. I believe that's in Jeremiah. That's a parallelism because the Ethiopians of Jeremiah's time were overrun. They had been overrun by the Nubians and their skin was just like the skin of a leopard. They were bastards. They were half white and half black. So the Ethiopian, once he is race mixed, can't change his skin, just like the leopard can't change his spots. The original Ethiopians, having been white, Adamic descendants of Ham. So that's a parallelism. There's another parallelism in Ezekiel that's major in scope, and that's Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. It's, they're not describing two different events, they use much the same language in each vision, the vision in 38 and the vision in 39. But what they are are two different descriptions of the same event from, from just slightly different perspectives. And, and that's a teaching method of the scripture to repeat the same thing in different ways so that we understand it better. So here, Christ gave the parable of the wheat and the tares, and then he gave the parable of the net. And they're basically speaking of the same exact phenomenon, but describing it in two slightly different ways. So that we understand it better when we understand them both. It's that simple. And that's a parallelism, and, and that is exactly what Christ is doing there in Matthew. He explained the parable of the wheat and the tares, and then he gave the parable of the net so that we would better understand the parable of the wheat and the tares, that it's all about race. It's all about the genos, or the kind, the kinds of people. That's what it's about, and only one of them is good. The man that God created is good. The bastards and the other races are not good. So Weissman, getting back to this paragraph, this first paragraph on page 56. By this doctrine, all the evil we see in the Jews comes from, quote unquote, Satan's seed, resulting in a satanic disposition of a spiritual and genetic nature within Cain and his descendants. Then he says, this is not in accord with the Bible, which reveals that evil things, whether spiritual or physical, come only from God, not from some devil. 
And that too is another deception. Because if you read, he he cites um, 1 Kings 18, chapter 18, verse 10. And I, I, I read that and, and didn't quite see why he cited that passage. But then he cited Isaiah chapter 45, 7, and Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4. And, and I'll read 45, 7, Isaiah 45, 7 real quick. And he is speaking about um, it's a prophecy of Cyrus, and it's mentioning Cyrus probably about 150 years before Cyrus even existed, but at least 80 years before Cyrus existed. And, or, or I'm sorry, 80 years before Cyrus came to his empire. That's my estimate. It might be a little less. But Isaiah, if we accept that Isaiah wrote this in the time of Hezekiah, that would be about 700 BC. Cyrus rose to power as king of Persia in 540 BC. So right, it's 160 years. Isaiah's writing this. And, and scholars doubt that Isaiah, the last 25 chapters of Isaiah were written by Isaiah. But the last 25 chapters of Isaiah were definitely written by Isaiah. According to Christ and his apostles, they were written by Isaiah. Even if the apostles, that there are some anomalies. But Isaiah wrote this 160 years before Cyrus came into his empire. 170 years before he conquered the Babylonians. And that's what it's referring to. And it's in relation to the punishment of Israel in captivity. And Isaiah 45, 7 says that these things will be done so that his people shall know him. And he says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, Yahweh, do all these things. Well, just because Yahweh creates evil, does that mean that evil has no other source? Does it really? So men can't do evil unless it's from God. That's what Weissman is saying. And if you think about it, that thought is evil because what it does is it blames God for all the sin that men do, if only if evil only comes from God. And that is the audacity, the chutzpah of Charles Weissman's um, profession is that he would blame God for all the evil that men do. How could we do that? Did David ever say in the Psalms that I sinned and I repent? and take responsibility for his own sins? Or did David say in the Psalms, God, why did you make me sin? <laughs> Where does the sin come from? Christ said that it the sin comes. Sounds like a rabbi argument. <laughs> it is a rabbi argument. Weissman's argument is a rabbi argument. And the real audacity of it is that earlier in his book, Weissman quoted, quoted Christ, who said that murders and blasphemies come from the heart of man. 
in Matthew 15. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts. And then Christ talks about evil actions. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, blasphemies. Okay, so if they come out of the heart, which heart was Christ talking about? The heart of man or the heart of God? Where did these evil things come from? From man or from God? Weissman makes this shit up. He takes a couple of verses out of context to create this argument, but the Bible doesn't support what he's saying. We have already exhibited the fact that there are two types of evil in Scripture. There is the evil which men see as evil, but which God brings upon man as a correction in result of his sin. Often, Yahweh uses wicked, the wicked people mentioned in Proverbs chapter 16 for that same purpose. He takes wicked people and uses them to punish his children. And we see that throughout the book of Judges. It's throughout the book of Joshua, Kings, Chronicles, and it's throughout history today. We are surrounded by niggers and taco goblins. We are ruled over by Jews as punishment for our sin. When we repent, when as a nation or as nations, we repent of our sin and turn back to our God and give up all the idolatries of the world, the Jews, the niggers, the taco goblins, they will fade into the background and we won't even know they exist. That's the whole pattern throughout the Old Testament. That sort of evil, the punishment of his people for their sins, that sort of evil is evil to man, but it is not evil to God as he is using it to accomplish something good, our repentance and obedience to him. But then there is the sort of evil which is sin and which is a form of rebellion against God. Every time we choose to sin, we are rebelling against God on one level or another. Since sin is violation of the laws which were made by God and given to men. We cannot blame God for that sin. We cannot blame God for the evil which men do. So, if you screw around and you have a son that's a bastard, and the son that's a bastard goes and kills your true-born son, Cain and Abel. Sound familiar? Whose fault is that? Did God do that? Or should you have not screwed around to have that bastard? You, you should not have fornicated to have that bastard, and you might still have your son. God can't be blamed for that. We have to take the responsibility for our own sins. In and that, um, that first one's very hard for people to accept, right? <coughs> that, um, you know, a plague or a pestilence that can come on us as punishment is the exact same as, you know, God sending a bunch of niggers to destroy your town. That the only way to get out of it is to repent. You can't, you know, uh, ally with 
I don't know, Mexicans to try and take them on, you'd, you'd, you're just going to fail. And a lot of people don't understand that today. Well, well, absolutely. And, and it's sad because it's clear in the scriptures, but it's not taught in the churches. And, and um, I, I like to point this out as an example, right? That the, um, that they were present among the um, people that were listening to Christ. They were present at that season, at that time. Some had told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, because they, that they wanted Christ to be offended by Pilate, right? That's what they wanted. They wanted Christ to be offended by Pilate's government, governance of the province. And Jesus answering said to them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you shall all perish likewise. And then he made another example of another incident where the tower in Siloam fell and slew 18 people. And Christ said basically the same thing. Do you think they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? Well, of course not. I tell you, nay, but unless you repent, you shall all perish likewise. So these people wanted Christ to be offended with the Romans. And Christ basically told them that this happened as a result of their sins. And if you keep sinning, you're all going to suffer the same fate. He didn't become offended with Rome. Joshua Christ understood, because he is God incarnate, that the Roman rule the pagan Roman rule over the world was a, a mandate from God to punish the world for its sin. Tyranny is a way by which Yahweh God punishes the people for their sin. Today we suffer under tyranny. We think we're in a democracy. We think that, that we, um, we have control over our own destiny because we rule ourselves, and yet we're ruled over by Jews and surrounded by niggers and taco goblins. How is that? We started out 200 years ago with entirely white nations and look at them today. How did that happen if we rule over ourselves? Who voted for niggers? Who voted to be flooded with taco goblins? Nobody voted for that shit. How did that happen? <laughs> How many people in America 100 years ago if you could describe to them the circumstances of today, would agree to it. Nobody? Okay. So we don't rule over ourselves. It's all a deception. We live in a tyranny. And we're being punished by God. In Revelation chapter 12, the serpent of the garden is described as having done that very thing, having at one time been an angel who formed a conspiracy and rebelled against God. So both the apostles, Peter and Jude, describe them as having left their first estate, having been the angels that sinned, and later as having crept in unawares among the ancient children of Israel in order to corrupt them, teach them heresies, speaking evil of good things, 
and doing so, they are waging an ongoing dispute with God himself. That is the serpent in the garden with his own order, as Weissman explained, who is angry with the order of God and trying to upset the order of God. These same angels that sinned await the judgment of the great day. And here I'm going to read Peter's description of them, in part from 2 Peter chapter 2, from verse 12. And he says, but these, speaking of those angels that sinned, but these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption, shall utterly perish, future tense, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, something in Peter's future, as they count it pleasure to riot in the daytime, to party in the daytime, which was seen, which was actually looked down on by Roman society, and of course by Hebrew society as well. Spots they are, and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. How is that not describing a good race and a bad race? The parable of the net. Having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, a heart they have exercised with covetous practices. Cursed children. Who was cursed in scripture? Yahweh cursed Cain. Noah cursed Canaan. What Israelites were ever cursed? Cursed children, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumbass speaking with a man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet who tried to curse Israel and couldn't. He was forbidden. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. So who is it that were cursed children? Cain was cursed by God, who told him that his sin was a result of the circumstances of his birth. Canaan was cursed by Noah, and the Canaanites later mixed with many non-Adamic tribes, including the Kenites, the descendants of Cain, and the Rephaim, who were from the Nephilim, or fallen ones. Esau was rejected and brought the curses of Canaan upon his own seed by taking his wives of Canaanite women. So Esau's children would bear the curse of Canaan. Esau didn't, Esau was not cursed by God. Esau cursed himself. So if there were cursed children among the early Christians, it is these to whom the apostles must be referring. And we have shown from the history of the period that the Jews were also comprised in large number from these cursed children. Charles Weissman has admitted that these people were cursed, even if he gave poor reasons. And at the same time, he denies the history 
and the words of the apostles, which identify them as the Jews, and as most of the Jews in the time of Christ. In the time of Christ, most of the Judeans were Edomites and Canaanites. So our two-seed line doctrine does indeed come directly from the gospel and the apostles of Christ. Peter believed in cursed children in Judea who rejected Christ because they were already cursed, and so do we. The way of Balaam is also fornication or race mixing. How do we know that? We know that from Numbers chapters 24 and chapters 25. Even though it's not explicit in Numbers, it is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, including here in Peter, including Revelation 2.14, where we see that the doctrine of Balaam was teaching Balak, the king of the Moabites, to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. What is that fornication? If you go back into Numbers chapter 24, we see that the children of Israel were joining themselves to the daughters of Moab. So when we take Peter's words and we take Micah's words in Micah chapter 6, verse 5, oh, my people, remember now what Balak, the king of Moab, consulted and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And we take Jude's relation of the way of Cain to the error of Balaam and the Revelation's explanation that the doctrine of Balaam had to do with committing fornication. Then we go back and see what happened in Numbers chapter 24. After Balaam had failed to curse the children of Israel, suddenly the men of Israel were being seduced sexually were joining themselves to the daughters of Moab. I'm sorry, it's Numbers chapter 25, verse 1. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom, fornication, race mixing, with the daughters of Moab. And then they started worshiping the idols of Moab because they were sexually attracted by their daughters. You think they um, went and rounded up, you know, the most beautiful um, doors they could to try and, and dress them provocatively. Absolutely. To try and lure the Israelites over. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's absolutely what happened. And look at how allured we are by sex today. White men falling for provocative. Now they focus more on trying to get women to mix, right? Back then it was a very strong patriarchy, so they couldn't get away with that. They had to um, try and seduce the men first, but now it's men and women. Well, it's that's the same true. Concept. That's true, but it, it's also um, the men are brainwashed by the movies they see in, in from on television and from Hollywood and the entertainments that they see, which are always um, 
elevating and promoting women of other races as, as sex idols, right? So it, it's, it, it's actually an attack on the entire race. But yes, they're enticing the women to fornicate as much as the men, and sometimes even more. It, it's actually, um, t today you're making, that these white women today in Protestant churches in America actually believe that they're doing God a favor by marrying a nigger. They really believe that. They're taught that by their pastors. So they really think they're doing God a service by marrying a damn nigger. Wow. Exactly what the scripture warns will cause your children to be killed by Jesus in Revelation chapter 2. But they don't get it. They're not taught the Bible. They're just not taught. And, and charlatans like Weissman, deceivers like Weissman, I, I shouldn't really call him a charlatan because I really do believe that he's done this all on purpose. It's all by deception. Deceivers like Weissman take advantage of somebody's surface knowledge of Scripture. Because if you have a surface knowledge of Scripture, if you've read the Bible without studying it real deeply, and, and you're familiar with all the verses he mentions, this can make sense. And it's sad because it's actually not what the Scripture's teaching, and he's getting away with exploiting people that have a surface knowledge of scripture and misleading them. And that's how it works. And, and that's most Protestants and, and well, Catholics have even less a knowledge of scripture than pro most Protestants, but most of them have a surface knowledge of scripture and they could be led away by these sophisticated arguments and, and they're all lies. The way of Balaam is also fornication or race mixing. So we further see what the original sin of the fallen angels had been. Jude likens this also to the way of Cain. Both Peter and Jude describe them in a manner by which we are assured that they are still among us doing these things. Spots in our Christian feasts of charity, exercising their adulterous and disgusting practices unto this very day. These words of the apostles do not describe Christians. They do not describe the lost sheep who are invited to the table of their master. These words describe interlopers, intruders who did not belong in the first place, men who are twice dead and not having the spirit as Jude describes them. Now today they are found in every Christian land playing the role of Satan and gathering all the heathen nations of the world against the camp of the saints. Why is it that Weissman is obfuscating this plain truth of scripture, history, and current events? They all go together perfectly the way that we understand them. Throughout his entire book, Weissman only cited eight words from Revelation chapters 12 and 20, and he only did that in order to argue our connection of the Satan of those chapters to the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. So he never really cared to explain what Christ had revealed about Satan, 
just as he mentioned tears only once, <coughs> I'm sorry, he mentioned tears only once, but he never actually commented on the parable of the wheat and the tares. Exploiting somebody's surface knowledge of scripture. Answering these same claims which Weissman had made earlier in this book, we have elucidated the truth of Genesis chapter 3. We have shown beyond doubt that Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 is corrupt, and we have illustrated how, from Scripture, how Cain could not have been the son of Adam. We have cited several early apocryphal Christian works and many New Testament passages ignored by Weissman in support of our arguments, and we have spoken at length about the many New Testament passages which Weissman conveniently ignored in his denial of the truth of two seed line. However, as we have also proven from many of his own statements, Weissman is no Christian. So it is no wonder that he did not discuss those New Testament passages at length. I sort of imagine that Weissman had a... a copy the scriptures that included only the Torah and the Tanakh and didn't have a New Testament. And he probably had to cross the room to pick his um, good news for modern man New Testament off the shelf and read it. That That's the vision I get, <laughs> that he only used the Jewish Bible. <laughs> With only a few paragraphs remaining, Weissman continues in denial, but he thinks he has already proven his assertions when, in fact, he had not proven them. So now he says, the fact that Cain was of Adam should be no more difficult to accept than the fact that Esau or Canaan were Adamic or our racial brothers. It should be no more difficult to accept than the fact that it was Israelites who killed the prophets and committed gross acts of idolatry. We have already shown that Weissman lied several times in his supposed proof that Cain was of Adam. He claimed that the devil was the first murderer when Christ was clearly referring to Cain as a devil, as being the first murderer. And where there is not one scripture supporting Weissman's claim that the devil was the first murderer. Then in one paragraph on page 28 of his book, we caught him in several lies where he said, cursed or rejected people are never included in the true genealogy of Adam, Noah, and Abraham. In fact, we also showed that the cursed Jeconiah, who was cursed by God, was still in the genealogy of Christ. Then he claimed Esau was a true Hebrew and a descendant of Abraham, but is not included in genealogy listings because he was rejected by God. Then further, that Canaan was an Adamite, but is not listed in Adam's genealogy because he was cursed. And finally, he said that Ishmael was Abraham's son, but is not in Abraham's genealogy as he was not of the chosen. 
We established that all four of those statements were lies. All four of them. And they were blatant lies. Of course, if you read the first couple of chapters of the book of Chronicles, first Chronicles, you will see Canaan, Esau, Ishmael, they're all listed in the genealogies. If you go right to Genesis chapter 10, you'll see Canaan listed at length in the genealogy. Ishmael is also mentioned. If you go to Genesis chapter, I think it's chapter 36, I believe, Genesis chapter 36, the entire chapter is Esau's genealogy. Weissman's a blatant liar. Where the children of Israel shouldered the blame for killing the prophets, that is true. When your nation does something, everybody in your nation is accountable for it. But Weissman misrepresents or ignores the circumstances. As we had elucidated, the few times that it is recorded in the Old Testament narratives that the priests of Yahweh are being slain, it is foreigners who were chiefly responsible for the murders. The prophets themselves, as we had, as we had further explained from Jeremiah chapter 2 and Ezekiel chapter 16, the prophets themselves had attributed the sins of Israel and specifically to those in Jerusalem to the fact that the Canaanites had infiltrated among the people and the children of Judah had mingled their seed with them. So where Christ had assigned blame for the deaths of the prophets, he said that one race would pay the penalty for the death of all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. In scripture, if a man makes an accusation, and this is according to the law, the entity he accuses must actually be guilty of the crime, according to two or three witnesses. If the entity is not guilty, the accuser suffers the punishment. So, did Christ die blameless in exchange for the sins of the children of Israel? Or did he die because he made false accusations against the Jews? That's what Weissman is really inferring here. Yet Christ is true and he cannot lie. When he said that one race alone was liable for the blood of the prophets. That must be the race which is descended from Cain and not from Seth. And his opposition in Jerusalem must have also belonged to that same race. The descendants of Seth cannot justly be held liable for the blood of Abel, as that would be a false accusation. Only our two-seed-line understanding of Scripture and history satisfies every aspect of the words of Christ and the laws of Yahweh without leaving any conflict or question. So Weissman is becoming an accuser of Christ, that Christ is a false accuser. Weissman is basically accusing Christ of being the devil.
Now Weissman claims that yeah, we have Christ brought the uh, dividing line to reveal the enemy to us. That was the whole purpose, right? Exactly. So th that's what we should realize and not trust Weissman. Once you understand the gospel of Christ, you understand that it's the gospel itself that separates the wheat from the tares. And it does it very effectively. It's all we need to separate the wheat from the tares. But Weissman is obfuscating all of it. He's really endeavoring to smear it all. Who's he covering for? He's covering for Jews. There's no other reason he's doing this but to make one giant apology for Jews. And he's projecting Jewish behavior on Christ himself. Now, Weissman claims that we have psychological problems, but he himself has problems, which can only be resolved in a lake of fire, where he says, identity adherents have also succumbed to the same psychological problem by their making the Jews in the New Testament as being Edomites, Canaanites, or a mixed race of people. We made the Jews be that, right? If you believe that you are an Israelite, then as a Christian, it is naturally hard to accept that Israelites were against Christ and wanted to kill him. Well, the truth is that some Israelites just went along with it because they loved the authorities in Judea more than they loved God. And John explained that in, in his gospel. He explained that very clearly. Weissman says, it is much more appealing to have these people be of an enemy race than of your own race. The truth is these Jews or Judeans were Israelites, though many of their descendants became a part of the hybrid Jews of today. First, if only many of their descendants are mongrels today, what of the rest of their descendants? Weissman seems to be suggesting that there are good, pure, or unmixed white Jews, although he doesn't state that explicitly. On page 56, he cites his own book on Jewish identity, which he evidently hopes his reader will now purchase. We're not going to buy it. It is clear that Weissman does not understand Jewish identity. The following two paragraphs are adapted from a paper. I edited them some, somewhat. Adapted from a paper at Christiania titled, A Concise Explanation of the Creation of the Jewish People. It has about 45,000 downloads. I wish it had 450,000. From Greek and Roman records, we can see that from the Hellenistic period, all of the southern portions of the land, once known as Judah and Israel, were called Edomia, after the Edomites. Strabo, the, first, the early first century Greek geographer, attests that Edomians were mixed up with the Judeans and that they shared in the same customs with them. That's in book 16 of his geography. And Strabo was a Greek. He was a pagan. He had no ax to grind against Judeans. And he died in 25 AD. So he clearly had none of the uh, 
prejudices that Roman writers exhibited against the Judeans after the rebellion, the rebellions of 65 to 70 AD, and the later rebellions of the early second century. The Kedos War, the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. So Strabo, writing 35 years before the beginning, or at least 40 years before the beginning of the war between the Judeans and Rome, he had no axe to grind, no political axe at all to grind against the Judeans. He's merely telling the truth. He had no pony in the um, differences between Christians and Jews because he died in 25 AD. So Strabo had no prejudices that were obvious at all in anything that he wrote about the Judeans. He's just merely stating plain facts that the Edomites and the Judeans were all living in Judea and that they shared in the same customs with them. And he said that several times in book chapter six, book 16, in book 16, in the early chapters of book 16 in his library of history. So from the histories of Flavius Josephus, it can be determined that around 130 BC, the same time that the first book of Maccabees comes to an end, and the second book of Maccabees, they both come to an end right around this time. So we don't have the records from anything subsequent to anything after 130. We don't have the records in Maccabees. Around 130 BC, the reigning Hasmonean high priest, John Hyrcanus, had decided to conquer all of the surrounding cities, the surrounding cities of ancient Israel, inhabited at that time by Edomites and Canaanites, and to either convert them to the religion of Judea, which was first called Judaism by the Greeks, or to let them leave the land or to be slain. That was their choices they were offered because the people of Jerusalem were militarily very powerful at this time. His predecessors, and we can see this, we can see this in the book of Maccabees, his predecessors were driving them out, but not having any success at keeping them out. So John Hyrcanus changed the policy, and he decided that he was going to convert them instead of drive them out. Because even though the Israelites in Jerusalem were very powerful militarily, they didn't have enough numbers of their population to actually occupy those cities in order to keep them out. So Josephus states that from this point, the point when John Hyrcanus began converting them, that these Edomites became none other than Jews or properly Judeans. Now, that's in two places. That's in Antiquities, um, Book 13, Paragraphs 257 and 258, where it's talking about Dora and Marisa, cities of Judea. But that's also in Paragraphs 395 to 397, where it's talking about 30 other towns and districts in Judea besides Dora and Marisa 
So basically, they forcibly converted all the Edomites and Canaanites who had occupied the surrounding towns and cities that formerly belonged to the children of Israel. They forcibly converted all those people to Judaism. Judea, from 130 BC forward, was a multiracial polyglot of a nation. The first Herod was an Edomite by race, and he usurped the power from the Hasmoneans. The Hasmonean dynasty was the race of high priests that John Hyrcanus belonged to. Herod usurped power from the Hasmoneans. He bribed the Romans to be made king. And from the time, from that time, the temple priesthood at Jerusalem was used as a political tool from 36 BC. Both Josephus and the ecclesiastical historian Eusebius admit that many of the priests were not worthy of the distinction under the former Levitical traditions, meaning that they weren't Levites, and the veracity of Malachi's prophecy that the priests had corrupted the covenant of Levi becomes quite clear with their testimony. The usurpation of political control in Jerusalem is the primary reason for all of the division recorded in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 16, verse 20, and in 2 Thessalonians, Paul alludes to the temple priesthood as Satan, which means adversary. And this is also attested to in Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, and Revelation chapter 3, verse 9, where Christ twice had said that there were those in Judea who called themselves Judeans, but were not. So how does Weissman say that they're all Israelites if Christ says they're not? Yahshua Christ informs the priests and other leaders in many places that they are the children of the adversary and that they are not his people. In Luke chapter 11, John chapter 8, John chapter 10, in Romans chapter 9, Paul makes a clear distinction between Israelites of Judea and the Edomites of Judea, calling the one vessels of mercy and the other vessels of destruction. It can be shown from the New Testament that many of the original Israelites of Judea converted to Christianity during the ensuing years, losing their identity as Judeans. So those people were never called Jews. But the Edomites never converted, clinging to their traditions found in the Talmud, which has absolutely no authentic connection to the ancient Hebrew religion. <clears throat> Today, these people and all of their many proselytes and those whom they have intermarried with, they are known as Jews. That's the end of my citation from my paper. I might repeat parts of it in the paragraphs to come and even right here. As we have often said here, and as we make a reference to in that paper, Yahshua Christ himself told his adversaries that you believe not because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. 
Since the children of Israel were these sheep, as it is often described in Scripture, then how could the priests of the time of Christ not have been his sheep? Only if they were not Israelites, as he said to them. Rather, they were Edomite converts from the decades leading up to the time of Christ. That conversion, forced conversion to Judaism by John Hyrcanus, didn't end with John Hyrcanus. It was continued by his successors, notably by Alexander Janius, who ruled over Judea for like 40 years, all the way to 76 BC. They were still converting these Edomites into Judaism. And the Romans came in 63 BC. And the Romans found that this um, polyglot nation, and they converted it into a province. So the Roman province of Judea included all of those converted Edomites. And they were happy making Herod the king because they didn't make any distinction between Israelites and Edomites. They didn't care about the distinctions. They only considered them all to be Judeans from the Roman point of view. Paul of Tarsus also explained this in Romans chapter 9, where he prayed for his kinsmen according to the flesh and said that the word of Yahweh did not fail because they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. And he went on to compare Jacob and Esau. Now, where Paul did that, where Paul prayed for his kinsmen according to the flesh, he was praying for unbelievers. He is praying for people that had not yet accepted the gospel of Christ. That's why he was praying for them. And then he said the word of God didn't fail because they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. So where he prayed for his kinsmen according to the flesh, he defined what he meant where he said they are not all Israel. Because that means there were some in Israel who were not his kinsmen according to the flesh. How is that not perfectly clear? That reveals that Strabo and Josephus had told the truth, that those who rejected Christ in Judea were of Esau. And Paul went on in that same place to describe the children of Israel as vessels of mercy and the children of Esau as vessels of destruction. However, Weissman ignored this, and he ignored several other significant statements by Paul, which also explain the true nature of the Jews. Christ told his adversaries that ye are not my sheep, and Weissman insists that they were of his sheep. That insistence puts Weissman in direct opposition to Christ himself. I don't know if you have any comments. Yeah, that's uh, what Paul was showing. That's exactly how we should be, right? We should only care about our own race and, and you know, be apophatic to all other races. It should, uh, our own race should be our only concern and, and building the kingdom of Yahweh with his commandments within our societies, within our nations. 
Well, well, right, absolutely, because Paul was praying for his kinsmen according to the flesh. He didn't care about those Edomites. He didn't care what they believed. It didn't change them. They were still Edomites. He only cared about his own people, the Israelites, and they are the ones he prayed for. He said that the Edomites were vessels of destruction. How could he care about the Edomites? He quoted Malachi where he said, God hates Esau. <laughs> he said that the promises and the covenants and the adoption and the law were for Israelites, right in that same passage. Then he went on to say, God hates Esau and Edomites are vessels of destruction. They couldn't share in the covenants or the promises, no matter how good they were circumcised. Paul defines right there that it's not about believe. It's about race. Now for the very last yeah, paragraph. Yeah, the uh, Paul Bashers always try and say that he was a universalist. Well, clearly Paul was a racist. Yeah, Paul was absolutely a racist. The Paul Bashers take a couple of times... And, and they're poor translations, and the verses are taken out of context where Paul refers to all men. But Paul wasn't speaking about all men of any other race. I, I use this analogy a lot. If I write a book that says, I love Volkswagens, and the only cars I'm going to recognize are Volkswagens, and I have a huge collection of Volkswagens on my land because I'm rich. And I put you in charge of my Volkswagens and I say, please wash all these cars. Can anybody imagine that I'm referring to a Cadillac or, or, or a Plymouth? Of course not. If I say to you, please wash all these cars, then... All of the cars that you're going to wash, you can assume are Volkswagens. And you could make that assumption rather safely. Well, God wrote a book and it says, I love Israel. <laughs> and he says, I'm going to save all men, promising salvation to Israel. So how could we imagine that um, some Nigerian is going to end up in there? They just pulled Paul's words out of context where Paul made racist comments on in many other places which prove that he believed that salvation and the promises of God were only for the children of Israel. And Romans chapter 9 is one of them. You can't interpret Paul in a way that makes Paul conflict with himself. If you're interpreting Paul, you should interpret Paul in a way that makes Paul, that, that understands that Paul is going to be consistent with himself. Same thing with Christ. You can't interpret Christ in a way that makes him conflict with himself. You can't do it. It's not fair. You're imagining, because of your double-mindedness, you're imagining that Jesus Christ was double-minded. Because of your double-mindedness, you're imagining that Paul of Tarsus was double-minded. You're projecting, and that's what Jews do. They project their own nature onto those whom they want to criticize or control or define. That's what they do. 
So they project their own double-mindedness onto Paul of Tarsus so that they could control people who believe Paul of Tarsus was an apostle of Christ. That's what they do. They're experts at it. That's the real psychology going on here. That's the real psychology of Charles Weissman. He's projecting. Now, for the very last paragraph of his book, Weissman concludes, Satanic seed line advocates see an inherent evil and anti-Christian nature in Jews and want to separate themselves from the Jews by having the source of that evil come from outside their race. To do so, their doctrine had to be based upon speculation and bad interpretation and thus is false. And that's an incredible lie. But Weissman himself had said here in this chapter that the Jews were satanic. He said it. And comparing them to foxes, that they had innate characteristics, which they have exhibited throughout the centuries in opposition to Christ and the white nations of Christian Europe. Weissman said that. Yet Weissman ignores all of the history and scripture which proves that the Jews are not Israelites and that they were not Israelites at the time of Christ. Either Weissman is wrong or Strabo, Josephus, and Paul of Tarsus are all lying. Weissman's own words have driven all the nails into his coffin. Now he needs to be buried for good. As you said before the program, Weissman, <laughs> throughout this book, Weissman played the part of the devil. Yeah, he's just a, a modern, um, you know, deceiver. The same, as I said, the same people that Paul had to face in his ministry all the time, trying to undermine him, chip away at him, turn people against him. And he's doing the same against CI, trying to undermine it. Well, well, right, absolutely. And and you had mentioned the devil in Job and how the devil acted towards Job. Weissman is acting in that same way towards Christ himself. Uh, I mean, he did say that Christ was merely following Babylonian dualism when he, when he called people serpents and vipers and things like that. When he spoke of Satan, he did say that. That's what he said. When he was yeah. talking about the Old Testament and saying that scripture from the time of the return from Babylon, that, that the scripture reflected Babylonian dualism. Weissman said that. So Christ was just following Babylonian paganism rather than the word of God. Rather than being the word of God made flesh. So Weissman acts as a devil even towards Christ. A devil meaning a false accuser. Well, I hope we drove yeah, the final and, nails and in. in Job, um, I was just going to say it's hard to, um, you know, imagine exactly how it all happened because we kind of have a very brief statement that, um, you know, this devil was challenging Yahweh and it could have been Yahweh just spoke through a prophet and accepted the challenge. But um, I imagine that the guy was just like Weisman, the devil. Maybe he wrote a book. Maybe he was going around giving conferences, talking about stocks and bonds. <laughs> but, but, you know, he was just undermining Yahweh. And, he, and um, you know, Weissman's exactly the same, just slightly different in a more modern atmosphere. But if we was to read a book 
or um, you know, a Bible book in a thousand years talking about Weissman, how Weissman challenged Yahweh that people wouldn't wake up to see I and Yahweh accepted the challenge and eventually we will, right? And Weissman's just that devil uh, opposing Yahweh ultimately. Well, I thank God it didn't take a thousand years, but it took a good 40. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure exactly when he wrote this book, but it had to be, it may have been in the 80s and, and close to 40 years ago. I'm sure it was in the 80s because Clifton was addressing this in the early to mid 90s. No, I'm sorry. Copyright January 1997. So I don't know when, when Clifton began. Clifton's ministry started in May of 1998. The, the, Clifton only made two recordings that I know of during the course of his ministry. They were both very early. And one of the recordings was a brief financial history of the United States. But the other recording Clifton made, I never listened to, to be honest. I never listened to it. Um, that Maybe that's um, shame, a shame on my part. Clifton knows I never listened to it. And I didn't even have it, a, a copy of it, until quite late in our relationship. But one of the recordings that he made was against Charles Weissman and he actually took a tape of Weissman um, and its material based on his book against two seed line and Clifton took a tape and he played Weissman and he was recording it onto another tape and he was stopping it and starting it and stopping it and starting and he'd play Weissman and then he would give his answer and then he would play some Weissman and give another answer and play some Weissman and give another answer. Well, well, and kept going through the end of the tape. And I know that I put that on his website at one time. I, I, I'm looking for it. I really don't. I really don't know the exact title of it. But I'm pretty I sure think it was I on, on Christogenia because I actually downloaded and listened to it. And he called Weissman a serpent all the way through. <laughs> so it's on my main site. Okay. I think so, yeah. Let me see. You know what? I think you're right, and I think I know where it is. If you click on any one of the Weissman podcasts and scroll down to the bottom, well, except part 23, because I didn't add it yet, but I will at it right now. If you click on one of the Weissman contacts and scroll all the way down to the bottom, you'll see a link to the podcast previous on the right and to the podcast next on the left, or a link in the middle that just says up. And if you click on the link that says up, then you'll see um, a listing and ultimately it will have 25 items in it. And the final item will be Clifton Emmerheiser rebuts Charles Weissman. That's Clifton's original recording.
It's an hour and 31 minutes, but I've never listened to it, honestly. But it's based on this book. Am I wrong? I'm, I'm sure it is. And yeah, Cliff um, I think Weissman did a few presentations. You know, we'd go up on stage. He wouldn't do the, the whole book, of course, but he would kind of summarize it and just go. Usually it was over the serpent and Genesis. And it was about, yeah, an hour and a half. Well, no, it must have been less if um, Clifton was able to, you know, respond to it constantly. But yeah, it was just a basic summary where he tried to dismantle CI. Okay, that's interesting. This book was written, I really thought it was written a lot earlier. That was always my impression. But it was copyright January 97. Clifton began his ministry in May of 98. And we became correspondents. And Clifton, it was, Clifton's a very hard man for anybody to ever gain his trust it probably took me um three or four years of of um working with him before he admitted that he trusted me and considered me a friend it really did um but i didn't work with him to gain his friendship i worked with him in order to help him because i saw a lot of good in in his early work and I wanted to help him. So our relationship started over a dispute in early 99. And by the end of 99, I was actually proofreading for him. So I don't think he ever mentioned me by name in any of his papers, even though he had employed a lot of my paragraphs I had written and, and little things I wrote to him, letters I wrote to him. Um, he didn't mention me my name until 2003, but I didn't learn that he made this tape until after I got out of prison in 2000 and the end of 2008. And I didn't get a copy of the tape until like 2015, I think <laughs> something like that. So I, I never had a chance to listen to it, but Clifton himself had digitized a copy of it, transferred it to his computer, and sent me that. And that's when I, I had finally, when did I put it on a website? Wow. I didn't put it on a website until August of 2018. So maybe I didn't have that copy of it until after I had moved him to Florida. Because it never got to my website until Clifton already passed. And I moved him to Florida the end of, towards September 2017, I think. So it must be during that time that I obtained this digital copy. But I didn't put it on a website until after Clifton was gone. So that's unfortunate. So but this, book, this book must have been quite late in uh, Weissman's ministry. He must have done some CI work. Um, you know, he did books on races and on Esau or the Edomites. And then he must have realized that CI was growing. So he tried to counter it, basically. He, he liked, you know, the popularity, the book sales, but he didn't want CI to get too popular. So so this book must have been for that purpose. Well, well, right. It must have been. But there were only a couple of notable voices that carried the torch for two seed lines. After the death of Compare, Compare died in 1983. 
Swift died in 1970. Compare died in 1983. And after 1983, there was Richard Butler, Aryan Nations. They were two seed line. There was um, Mike Hallamore in Arkansas, Kingdom Identity Ministries. And Lorraine Swift told me personally that it was Mike Hallamore who was the official heir of Wesley Swift's ministry, even though Hallamore hasn't really done a whole lot with it. He has done a few things. And, and then there was um, Jim Wickstrom and Dan Gaiman. I don't think there were much, many more two-seed line, notable or, or prolific two-seed line people aside from them. Nearly all of the notable Christian identity pastors were deniers. There were seed line deniers after the mold of Sheldon Emery. Yeah, it's amazing how small the ministry's always been and how it still persisted. Only Yahweh could keep it alive. Yeah, I believe so. I, I really believe that, or I like to believe it. Um, it, 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 it has. We believe that 2C line is true, or we wouldn't profess it. If I denied 2C line and could still and, and you know teach the history and, and the meanings of the Greek and everything else I do in the scriptures, I'd probably be a lot more wealthy. I'm sure I'd be a lot more wealthy than I am now. I would bet, but that's life. You, you, we, we don't follow what we believe is true. And while it's so unpopular, because we think it's cool, that's not why we do it. We do it because we know it's true. That's why we do it. And, and I hope that through this, these 24 parts of Charles Weissman, we've proven once again that it is true and, and that it stands up to all of these sophistic arguments that Weissman created against it because none of them hold water. I pray we've driven the final nails in his coffin, at least for the people that are going to be able to hear this. And, and that's another huge problem with our race is that not too many people will take a 24-part series of podcasts on a single topic and actually listen to all 24 parts. Uh, I mean, my website is a testimony to that. I get 5,000 listeners at the beginning of a series, and by the end, I got 1,200 if I'm lucky. That's the way it's always been. And and none of them are going to hear this because it's in part 24. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they're not going to hear it either. <laughs> you should put it at the start right, when we did yeah, part right. one right at the beginning. I should cut this end off and put it at the start of part one. <laughs> That's funny. Well, well, I appreciate you having done this with me, and, and I hope we can move on to your... Um, 100 proofs. I don't know if you're going to be ready next Saturday or not, but that's up to you. Yeah, absolutely. I've been looking forward to that. I'll definitely be ready. Great. We can just roll with it, right? To, um, go for one to 10 or, you know, 10 parts each segment or see how it goes.
Yeah, I would very much appreciate it if you just sent me um, parts one through ten, like by Tuesday, so I could spend a couple hours considering things. I'm not going to write treatises for this series. I'm not going to um, write long papers. I'm actually going to take the time to, I pray, to start writing on other topics that that I'll use down the road. But I will spend a few hours with each one considering the points and. Um, determining what I could say that's meaningful about them, but I have to know the points ahead of time in order to do that. So I would just appreciate a list, maybe each week. Yeah, of course, that's no problem, no problem at all. And I'll really look forward to doing that with you and getting that out there, be because um, there definitely are a hundred proofs in scripture, or, or maybe several hundred that prove that the Israelites were white, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. And now that you've been, you know, doing Christogenia for, I don't know, would you say 10 years or would you count 20 years? <laughs> but but regardless, you've built up, um, you know, so many podcasts that um, it's hard for a new person to know where to start. And 100 proofs could kind of, like Bible Basics, just be an intro. And it could list um, many of the useful podcasts that people can jump in on this topic or that proof for this bit of evidence, you know, there, there's going to be at least five podcasts per proof that people could jump in if they're interested in looking further. And, and hopefully it would encourage people to really look into CI deeply. Absolutely. And and we'll do our best to um, present it in that way. And and thank you for being here and for doing this. And, and I appreciate it. No worries. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, not the God of the Weissmans, Jews, Spicks, niggers, and all the other taco goblins and devils out there. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Praise Yahweh. And, and good night.